0: looking back on the week that was with a razor wit irreverent humor and profound political and cultural insights this is the james mcpherson show Welcome to the James McPherson Show on this Tuesday, October 20, 2020. Great to have your company. In a little while, we're going to be talking about how leftists change the dictionary to corner their ideological opponents. I want to talk about why abortion and euthanasia are inextricably linked. I want to talk about John Hewson, the former liberal leader's inability to decipher what's the difference between New Zealand and Victoria and as well as that, I want to talk about the United Nations and their uh, decision to put the worst human rights abusers on the Human Rights Council. All that and more coming up in the show. Great to have your company. I trust you enjoy it. Former Liberal leader John Hewson cannot understand why New Zealand's Justina Dern is receiving bouquets for her handling of coronavirus while Victoria's Daniel Andrews is receiving brickbats. He thinks both should be applauded as, you know, pandemic-fighting superheroes. Houston tweeted at the weekend, "'Double standard? Ardern is being lauded and electorally rewarded for what is virtually a COVID eradication strategy at very significant cost, yet Andrews is being attacked every day for his efforts to contain the virus.'" Well, the difference is slightly more difficult to understand than the GST on your standard cake, so Houston has little chance of wrapping his mind around it, but let's try. An obvious difference is that the Kiwi Prime Minister got the virus under control. The Victorian Premier, by contrast, succeeded only in spreading the virus. His government's now infamous hotel quarantine bungle resulted in around 800 deaths and a draconian statewide lockdown. So the difference in attitude toward Ardern and Daniel's is akin to the difference in attitude one might have towards, say, a firefighter and an arsonist holding a hose. Here's another difference. Ardern subjected our cousins across the ditch to six weeks of lockdown as a preventative measure. Meanwhile, Victorians have been forced to endure the world's harshest lockdown for 15 weeks and counting to recover from Daniel Andrew's mistakes. Or you might like to consider that, unlike Daniel Andrews, Ardern didn't send police into homes to handcuff pregnant women in their pajamas for crimes against Facebook. In short, the scenarios are so different that only a former federal leader struggling with the same irrelevancy syndrome as Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull could fail to see it. The real question is why ex-Liberal leader John Houston is more supportive of Daniel Andrews than is the current Labour leader, Anthony Albanese. Americans anxious to know who a foreign teenager will endorse for president before deciding how they will vote can now relax. Greta Thunberg has made her choice. The Swedish activist began to tweet on Saturday, I never engage in party politics, but, which of course meant she was about to do the very thing she never does. Well, the world held its collective breath. Even global warming paused in anticipation. As the environmental doomsdayer continued tweeting, the upcoming US election is above and beyond all that. From a climate perspective, it's very far from enough and many of you, of course, supported other candidates, but I mean, you know, the world was sitting there. Yeah, yeah, we get all of that, Greta. It's one minute to midnight, so we've only got 10 minutes to save the world from going off the edge of a climate emergency crisis cliff, whatever. Tell us who to vote for, pigtailed Swedish schoolgirl. And then she wrote the words, just get organised and get everyone to vote Biden. And so there it was. Greta Thunberg, too young to vote and not a US citizen anyway, is endorsing Joe fracking Biden. If you're looking for a candidate to prevent bad weather or something, Biden's your man. No doubt Joe Biden will appreciate Greta's support as well as, you know, the smell of her hair, and if Biden wins, he may well nominate Greta as his 15th pick for the Supreme Court. But the Goblin of Doom, who once resided in the state of utopia and now spends her time travelling between the state of rage and the state of delusion, where Prince Harry and Meghan Markle also live, is not registered to vote in any US state. Democrats, though, you can be sure will find a little-known provision in the US Constitution that provides a right to vote in all 50 states, multiple times, by mail, provided you've skipped school to sail across the ocean to lecture everybody on climate change. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire! Political commentator Peter Van Onselen was critical of conservative commentators who are backing Trump. He told the ABC insiders on Sunday, Trump is the opposite of conservatism. He attacks institutions. He attacks the fourth estate. He doesn't represent good governance. Trump attacks the fourth estate. Peter Van Onselen needs to understand conservatives don't support Trump in spite of his attacks on the media, but because of them. We're thrilled to finally see a conservative politician realise the media are not neutral bystanders and so treat them accordingly. ABC News reporter Joe O'Brien tweeted breathlessly, big day for Victoria, as Daniel Andrews was about to hold another media conference to announce some sort of lifting of restrictions. No. No. The big day for Victoria will be in November of 2022. The Melbourne Age tweeted, Joe Biden's TV town hall scored higher ratings than Donald Trump's. It's a worrying sign of Trump fatigue for Republicans ahead of Election Day. People tuned in to hear Joe Biden the day after a major scandal involving Joe Biden's family was revealed. And the age think Trump should be worried. Political columnist for the Australian, Troy Branston tweeted, Donald Trump has been a truly catastrophic president, which explains why he's on track to lose the election by a landslide. Well, Troy, I'll grant you the Trump presidency has been a circus if you grant me that all the clowns have been Democrats. Fire. CNN report Former White House Chief of Staff, retired Marine General John Kelly, has told friends that the President Trump is the most flawed person he's ever known. Wow. So, breaking news. Flawed individual makes great decisions on the economy, foreign affairs, energy policy, and court judges. Fire. Green's founder Bob Brown says Australia needs to be a leader in helping drive down the alarming rate of global population growth, as he laments the reluctance of the environmental movement to address this issue. Interesting. You know, you should always ask those who want to reduce the population if they see themselves as surplus to requirements. Daily Mail reported last week that Bruce Springsteen says he'll move to Australia if Donald Trump is re-elected. Well, Bruce, you're going to love Victoria. In the same week that Stevie Nicks boasted there would have been no Fleetwood Mac had she not aborted her baby, Queensland Premier Anastasia Pelagé has vowed to legalise assisted dying. Stevie Nicks confirmed what honest people have always known, that despite the fog pro-abortionists like to create, abortion destroys human life for the convenience of others. She told The Guardian she'd conceived a child with the Eagles singer Don Henley in 1979, but, quote, There's just no way that I could have had a child then, working as hard as we worked constantly. I knew the music we were going to bring to the world was going to heal so many people's hearts and make people so happy. And I thought, you know what? That's really important. So Stevie Nicks had an abortion. As Fleetwood Mac famously sang, Loving you isn't the right thing to do. How can I ever change things that I feel? You can go your own way. Freed from the inconvenience of a child, she went on to sell more than 120 million records and to be twice inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If I'd not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac, she said. And here we were, thinking the cost of a Fleetwood Mac album was around 20 bucks. When you feel no shame admitting that you judged the life of your unborn child to be of less value than the possibility of a pop music career, you're acknowledging that our culture has crossed a moral line. But our obsession with individual autonomy celebrated by Stevie Nicks, is something that should give Queenslanders reason for pause as Labour promises to legalise euthanasia. If people applaud Stevie Nicks for judging another human's life worth sacrificing for a Grammy Award, what is to stop those same people judging our lives worth sacrificing for their own peculiar reasons? This is not a question the Queensland Premier wants anyone to seriously consider which is why she waited until the middle of a pandemic and just two weeks before the state election to announce her euthanasia policy. Better for voters to feel rather than think when it comes to euthanasia. And what better time to feel the argument for death than after suffering for months at the hands of a stubborn virus and soul-destroying lockdowns. The argument for euthanasia derives its emotional power from the picture painted of a terminally ill patient with nothing but intense suffering standing between him and death. The picture is largely false since there are ways to manage pain for the terminally ill. Moreover, there are many people in discomfort, physical or emotional, but who are not terminal. Are they to be denied the permanent relief euthanasia provides for want of a terminal illness? But I digress. The euthanasia candidate will be in a diminished physical condition and probably frightened or despairing or both, all of which means that his will and his capacity for independent thought will also be weakened. He'll probably be flat on his back with his relatives and the authority figure of the doctor looking down at him. There can be be few better subjects and settings for subtle or not so subtle psychological coercion. The patient will know and will probably have been informed that prolonging his life, which the doctor says will be brief, places an enormous emotional and financial burden on his family. Many people in this position are likely to accept premature death under coercion. And this is what progressives call dignity with death with dignity. There's also the very real prospect that some people who request euthanasia are really looking for reassurance that they're loved and valued despite their physical decline. If the family and the doctor fail to pick up on this, the patient may be trapped by the request and feel he or she has no choice but to die. Is this the autonomy of the patient that euthanasia supporters insist is their object? The systematic killing of unborn children in huge numbers is part of a general disregard for human life that's been growing for some time. Abortion on its own did not cause the disregard, but it certainly deepens and legitimizes the nihilism that's spreading in our culture and that finds killing for convenience acceptable. We cross lines, at first slowly and now rapidly. We killed unborn children for convenience and harvested their fetal tissue for science, of course, all while calling it reproductive health. As Fleetwood Mac sang, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Abortion has coarsened us. If it's permissible to kill the unborn human for convenience, it's surely permissible to kill those thought to be soon to die for the same reason and it's inevitable that many who are not in danger of imminent death will be killed to ease their families of burden. Convenience has for some time been the central theme of our culture. And here's the thing. Humans tend to be inconvenient at both ends of their lives. Like me, you probably find the quality of news frustrating. Reporting of political news rarely seems balanced. If you want a deeper understanding of the issues that are usually offered by mainstream media, you want The Good Source. The Good Source is fan-funded through monthly and one-time donations. To keep our videos and our podcasts, our articles free, and to produce more content like this, please consider becoming a regular supporter. As part of The Good Source's initiatives, we're developing a television studio from which we can film more content. We receive no government funding, so if this initiative is to grow, it'll take fan funding, grassroots buy-in from people like you, we're sick enough of the divisive, anti-family Marxist guff pumped out in corporate media to do something about it. Your donation will help Good Source fit out and equip a basic studio to produce more independent video media and podcasts, keeping these important conversations from being shut down and censored. Donors will also get behind-the-scenes access to before, during, and after construction photos and video. Our goal is to complete the fit-out of the studio in time for election night on October 31 in Queensland. For information about how you can become a Good Source supporter, go to GoodSource.news/studio. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. I'll send you to burn. Chief Melbourne Age newspaper reporter Chipley Grand said. Peter Credlin is back interrogating Daniel Andrews at a press conference today. Yes, she works as a broadcaster and is employed by a media company, but she's not a journalist. She's a partisan political operative. Mr. Andrews is within his rights to tell her to bugger off. Well, that's a case of a so called journalist criticizing a so called partisan political operative for daring to question a so called premier. Ah! Finally, NBC News tweeted, Student says he warned his teacher about showing caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad, considered blasphemous by Muslims, days before the teacher was decapitated on a Paris street in what French President Macron called an Islamic terrorist attack. He was warned. That's the NBC News lead. Can you believe it? Yeah, he was decapitated, but, I mean, you know, he received fair warning. We told him a couple of days earlier that if he kept this up, he'd literally lose his head. He was warned. Can you believe it? That's the NBC News response. He was warned. In response to the Paris terror attack, the editor of a British Muslim magazine, Five Pillars, Roshan Saleh, tweeted, Charlie Hebdo must be shut down immediately by French authorities. This racist Islamophobic rag is causing community relations to completely break down with its repeated provocations. They are literally crying fire in a crowded theatre. Freedom of speech isn't worth civil war. Right. So while so-called extremists cut off heads, so-called moderates come in before the blood has dried to suggest that if we just, you know, become a little more Islamic, everything will be fine. It's a dance they do. And while we're on the subject, here's another thing. Why do the media always refer to the Prophet, capital P, Muhammad? They never refer to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, or the revered teacher, Buddha, or to the Lord Krishna. Even as the media report Islamic violence, They are careful to pay Islam respect they afford no other religion because, well, you know. Sky News Australia reported the terror attack in Paris like this. A history teacher has been assassinated in an Islamist terror attack in a Paris suburb because he was said to have discussed images of the Prophet Muhammad with his pupils. That's not bad, but guaranteed tomorrow the news will be this. A history teacher who needlessly and thoughtlessly, indeed provocatively, discussed images of Prophet Muhammad with his pupils, has been assassinated by a lone wolf with a long criminal history who suffered mental health issues and was not a real follower of the religion of peace. Police are still trying to work out the motive. Still on the subject of that Islamist attack in Paris, I thought this news headline was interesting from BBC World News. Macron calls Paris beheading Islamist terrorist attack. Well, there's proof right there that we now live in a world where calling things by their right names is so rare as to make the headlines. The New York Times reported last week that a knife-wielding man decapitated a teacher near a school in a suburb north of Paris and was later shot dead by the police. A police officer confirmed reports that the victim was a history teacher who had shown caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in class. You see, the difference between a progressive and an Islamist is that one will cancel your career and the other will cancel your head. The Dictionary is now a political weapon, edited at will by sanctimonious progressives in order to dominate their ideological opponents. Definitions are changed with breathtaking speed in order to make the perfectly acceptable thing that a conservative has said at breakfast, evidence of bigotry by dinner. The tactic employed last Tuesday with devastating effect against US Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett is one with which Australians should be familiar. Macquarie Dictionary announced it would broaden the definition of misogyny a week after Julia Gillard's speech, labelling the then Prime Minister Tony Abbott as a misogynist. Misogyny had been defined as a hatred of women. The problem for Gillard was that Tony Abbott did not hate women. He was married to one. He had three daughters and a sister and a female deputy. So, dictionary editor Sue Butler told the Sydney Morning Herald the definition would be, quote, changed to reflect what Ms. Gillard really meant, end quote. Now, that is power. The ability to imagine your own version of reality and then edit the dictionary to later wave around as proof that your reality does in fact exist. What Macquarie Dictionary did in a week to damn Abbott. Webster's Dictionary did in a day to trap Amy Coney Barrett. Trump's Supreme Court nominee told her Senate confirmation hearing, quote, I've never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would never discriminate on the basis of sexual preference, end quote. Later that same day, the Democrats decided the term sexual preference a term Joe Biden used without complaint as recently as May, and that the media and gay activists have used for more than a decade, was problematic. Senator Mazie Hirono said it was, quote, an offensive and outdated term used by anti-LGBTQ activists to suggest sexual orientation is a choice, end quote. MSNBC producer Kyle Griffin, who himself is gay, tweeted, and I quote, Sexual preference, a term used by Justice Barrett, is offensive and outdated. The term implies sexuality is a choice. It's not. News organizations should not repeat Justice Barrett's words without providing that important context, end quote. Later that same night, Webster's Dictionary updated its definition of preference in order to be in lockstop with leftist ideology. Quote, the term preference, as used to refer to sexual orientation, is widely considered offensive in its implied suggestion that a person can choose who they're sexually or romantically attracted to, end quote. That's what the dictionary now says. Putting aside the fact that this meant Websters themselves were unaware the term was widely offensive prior to last Tuesday, it was an awesome demonstration of cultural dominance. Progressives took the benign term sexual preference and turned it into an unspeakable slur in less than 24 hours. Simply put, the term was made offensive soon after someone the left hates had used it so that the hated one could be retrospectively accused of hate. Perhaps the greatest commendation of Amy Coney Barrett is that Democrats had to go so far as adjusting the dictionary in order to make her look bad but I digress. It was unnerving to watch George Orwell's 1984 play out in real time, in real life, right in front of our eyes. On one side of the political divide, permission has been given to adjust language on the fly, however they see fit. And as everything becomes digital, reality becomes increasingly fluid and the past can be edited at a whim. George Orwell may have predicted the memory hole. But not even he could have predicted real-time public viewing of it in action. And yet it's still effective, even out in the open. Imagine the outcry if Donald Trump, say, appointed five members of the Ku Klux Klan to oversee race relations. There'd be worldwide outrage. People would riot in the streets. Leaders around the world would denounce the decision and threaten to end diplomatic relations. Well, last week, the United Nations appointed four serial human rights abusers to its Human Rights Council, and there was barely a murmur of protest. China, Russia, Pakistan, and Cuba all took their place on the 47-nation council from which they will spend the next three years lecturing the rest of the world on human rights. As of last week, democracies like Australia must answer to a communist state a Marxist-Leninist socialist state, and a nation ruled by an autocratic thug for the way in which we treat people. China were rewarded for detaining more than a million of its citizens in extrajudicial internment camps designed to erase religious and ethnic identities by being asked to adjudicate on human rights abuses in other nations. Has the United Nations already forgotten about China's role in, by which I mean total responsibility for, coronavirus? Have United Nations representatives never heard of Tibet or Hong Kong or Taiwan? It takes a special kind of cognitive dissonance to take the nation that might be voted worst human rights abuser and instead vote for them to police human rights. Why don't we appoint arsonists to the fire brigade, gang members to the police force and pedophiles to teachers' unions? As for Russia... Some people fear they might poison the UN's Council on Human Rights, but that's unfair. Russia only poisons critics of their government. And what do you do with Cuba and Pakistan, which have refused entry to the Human Rights Council's experts on torture, free assembly, free expression, and arbitrary detention, rejecting their requests to visit and report on the situation of human rights in their countries? Well, you put them on the Council of Human Rights to oversee the inspection of other countries, of course. If you can't beat them, join them. Or better, have them join you and put them in charge. The United Nations boasts that members of the Human Rights Council must uphold the highest standards in the promotion and protection of human rights. But the Council for Human Rights is actually a protector of human rights abusers. In 2018, the then US Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said, Human rights abusers continue to serve on and be elected to the Council. The world's most inhumane regimes continue to escape scrutiny, and the Council continues politicising and scapegoating of countries with positive human rights records in an attempt to distract from the abusers in their ranks. Well, as a result of that, Donald Trump, for all his credits, had the good sense to walk away from the Council. The United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said at the time he regretted America's decision. Well, sure, but... Evidently, not enough to stop the inmates continuing to run the asylum. Scott Morrison should insist that Australia has absolutely nothing to do with this sham organisation. The James McPherson Show is a production of The Good Source, written and presented by James McPherson. To watch, listen to, or read more media without the SJW narratives or PC fact filter, visit GoodSource.news. That's good, S A U C E.news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show.